What is consciousness? The mind produces thoughts, sensations, perception, emotions. How can these inner felt experiences be produced within the darkness of the human skull? Who is David Byrne? In, uh... I have no idea. Most people know me through music, but when I was in high school, I saw science and the arts as being equally creative fields. More recently, I just started taking an interest in how the brain works, and there's been this explosion of literature. As much as I love reading about neuroscience, I realized that experiencing some of the phenomena is just on a different level. I wanted to create an experience that shows us we're not who we think we are. Theater of the Mind is an immersive science theater project. With this show, I've tried to marry a narrative to the experience of different scientific phenomena that reveal how malleable our perception, memory, and identity really are. To make a production like this work, it's a big, invisible team. There's actors, lighting designers, sound designers, technical people. So it's a really complicated system. Everyone, welcome. This is Theater of the Mind. How do we operate in a world where we're not sure what's real and what's not? If things are unreliable, then what do we trust? People think of science as being intimidating but it also doesn't mean that you can't understand it or can't enjoy it. Our emotions, our sense of self, our relationship to other people is all connected to our perception, that you can't separate one of these things from another. They all work together to make us what we are. So I have to ask, who is David Byrne? Uh, <laughs> I'm fully functional, but I, I, it's, it's a work in progress, yeah. Today we're speaking with John Tracy of the Simons Foundation, Nicholas Brockman and Ian Babayad of People's TV, who made the Theatre of the Mind short and other films as part of the Foundation's Science Sandbox. Nick Brockman, John Tracy, Ian Mubayed, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank, Thank you so much. much. So the theater of the mind grows out of an immersive theater experience co-created by artist David Byrne. Perhaps you'd like to explain the evolution of this project and what it was like to make that film. John, why don't you give an overview of what the series is, and then maybe Ian can talk about the process of making theater of the mind specifically. Mm -hmm. So for us, Stories of Impact is a series that shows the real world influences the projects that we support. Really, it started as a way to provide our awardees with
with, many of whom don't have very large communications budgets or the capacity to make these sorts of films in-house. The idea is to provide them a mechanism to tell their story in a way that's not traditional. And I guess what I mean by traditional is it's not listing, for example, how many people they've reached or a board member talking directly to camera. It's taking one story, one individual who has gone through their programming or, or worked with them and telling that story and how it's shaped their lives or helped them reimagine their relationship to science. And the idea is that these organizations take these videos and, and use them for various purposes, whether it's more traditional like marketing or uh, in meetings with other funders or potentially new participants for their programs, what have you. So, so Theater of Mind was, was definitely in that vein. Yeah, I think we've been doing this for about six years with Science Sandbox. And each year they present basically three possible grantees of theirs that could be potential stories for us. And with each of them, including Theater of the Mind, we really start with researching their work and better understanding how can we capture the spirit of their work and how can we anchor that through the perspective, as John said, typically one character or someone that can take us on that journey. And so with Theater of the Mind, it was basically that process. We really wanted to understand what the actual theater experience was so we could better reflect it in the piece. And what was fun about this one is it offered so much creative potential because, of course, it's David Byrne. So the experience itself offered so much for us to play with. And so from the beginning, it was about how can we capture the spirit of this experience within three minutes? And we really leaned into the actual theater experience itself and in, in, in terms of the story structure and the kind of questions the experience offers. And so that really informed the whole process. And another layer to this is with each of these stories of impact films that we do, we typically have the luxury of a pre-interview with our subjects. Mm. In a way, that also informs how the visuals will come together. David was, from the very beginning and through the facilitation of John and his team, was open to being part of that process, which I think is really critical for the story building element of it. But those pre-interviews become essentially the building blocks for the story, and we transcribe those interviews and almost write it out in a way. We start to structure the story from there. And it's so important what you do. As you say, sometimes the science is compelling, but to bring you into that storytelling process for those who don't come from a background of STEM, but they can understand it on an emotional level that you break down boundaries and they see how they can apply it to their lives, I think is really important. And when I heard about this, who wouldn't want to go inside the mind of David Byrne? It's actually more than that, but it touches on his history of his life, but also this whole what is perception? What is your sense of self? It makes you ask these important, not just neuroscience questions, but important philosophical questions. Yeah, I think it's really reflective of the type of work we support. It's a, it is a serious kind of meditative experience, but it's also very playful. There's a lot of the element of surprise involved. And I think people did a really good job of capturing the, the essence of the experience without any spoilers, frankly. But I think something we loved about this project in particular is that there aren't that many science-centered opportunities for play for adults anyway. It's a, a lot of the focus is on K-12 education and how do we stoke this feeling of joy when kids do science. But when you get into adulthood, there's not much there, right? There's not many experiences to immerse yourself in something and, and just have fun. <laughs> I think that tends to end after we graduate high school. And we really wanted to capture that in this film. I'll just add me responding to what you said about going inside the mind of David Byrne. I think that applies writ large to the series and the projects we've done with Simons in that I think documentary film is essentially the best medium to walk in somebody else's shoes and to create empathy and, and 
brand connection. And we think about that a lot with our foundation partners doing advocacy work, but it's especially important with science storytelling, which for non-scientific audiences, which includes myself, can often be incredibly confusing or unfortunately boring. And so for us, and I think this is at a meta level in the David Byrne piece, because that's all about pretending to identify with somebody else. So it's a meta exploration of storytelling and what makes storytelling powerful, which is the ability to be somebody else for a few minutes. And what we try to do with stories of impact in general is whether you're looking through the eyes of a scientist or a kid who maybe benefited from one of these programs to actually see it through their eyes, as opposed to learning about the science, which is much better to be done in maybe a white paper or some other format. This is a unique medium, I think, to get people to engage with science and the way that the Simons Foundation and Science Sandbox are exploring it. And there's also, as you say, this empathic imagination that you're tapping into, and there's this play on words with a theater of mind, theory of mind. You kind of forget your own identity or you imagine others' identity in the actual theater experience. I guess it was 16 people. It's very intimate. It's quite unusual to have that experience. I guess I should ask, it's a very direct question, but I don't think a lot of us take the time to reflect on it. You start the film with, you know, who is David Byrne? And he's asking himself, he's a little taken aback by the question. I guess for each of you, who are you, Nick, John, Ian? What your sense of self and consciousness? <laughs> yeah, I think David made it clear in the film, and I think it's really true, is that people are not static. We're ever evolving. And so I'm not the same person that I was when I was a kid. Maybe a cop out for this answer, but I do think it's true. I could say that I'm a filmmaker, I'm a New Yorker, all these things, but I really do think what he said in the piece is true, that we're constantly changing, and I'm sure I'll be a different Ian Wobayat in five years from now. Yeah, to me, it evokes this question, is who you are communicable, and is it possible for other people <laughs> beyond maybe one or two or none to really know that? And I think it's funny because the show really plays with that, and without giving too much away, each time you go through the show, it's not going to be the same experience as you had the last time. For one, there's different actors who play David throughout the show, and they have different vocal indentations. They might interpret part of the script differently and do a line reading that's different that might color your experience of one of the memories that you're going through. So I think it's fascinating in that way. And the David show really plays with that idea. But yeah, beyond adjectives of like what I do and who I hang out with and who I love and where I live, I think there's an argument to be made who I am that's not really communicable. It's an uncomfortable question to be confronted with on Tuesday at 1 p.m. in the middle of a work day. <laughs> and I agree with what these guys said. I think there's many selves. There's the me that's on this podcast right now that's maybe more presentational than the me over a beer with Ian or me with my family or partner. And I think similarly with documentary, going back to the meta storytelling themes I was bringing up earlier, there's a big question about documentary truth when doing portraits of characters. And is this the real version of that person? And I think when you do these kinds of films, you're only able to capture one of those selves. And so to me, the question raises a lot of storytelling questions about whether documentaries are objective or any more real of a portrait of a person than a scripted film. In a sense, the way Ian was talking about earlier, this film was scripted and written based on interviews, much in the, the three-act structure way, the way you might a narrative film. And so I'm just connecting your question to the sort of thoughts that I have when we create these kinds of stories about how we portray people in these three-minute sections where really only one of their many identities can come through. Yes, that's a good point. Our lives are fractured or we go through many selves or many different stages of our lives and we have this ideal vision of ourselves. I guess we are the stories we tell ourselves or we, the stories we tell others about ourselves and we have an inner voice. So it's so complex. Right before this conversation, I had a discussion with a neuroscientist, well, philosopher, no 
neuroscientist, we're talking about AI. So this is forefront of my mind. And we're thinking about can machines have consciousness? And what's what is consciousness? Then what is intelligence? All these things are very important, but we often don't ask ourselves what makes us. And what was fascinating with this theater of mind experience is also it's an embodied experience. It goes through several rooms, 12 rooms, is it? And so that seems to me one thing that distinguishes us from our new technologies. I think so. For me, when I think of intelligence, I can't really decouple it from the idea of consciousness. And and that's why, like, when you say things like artificial intelligence, it's like, to your point, what do we mean by intelligence? I think people have their own incommunicable working definitions of what consciousness and what intelligence is, but I don't know that there's a consensus. So again, it's sort of a gray area. Also, I think as we ask ourselves about who we are, which is a really important question to ask, and sometimes the world moves so fast that we don't get that chance. What your projects that you give to your grantees, it's creativity and the sciences or communicating that science with merging the STEM and the STEAM. We used to always think of creativity as belonging to the arts, and now we understand that it's across a full spectrum. How do you define those projects that really capture your imagination you feel that are important to support? Yeah, I think when when we encounter an exciting new organization, I think the things that we typically think of is who is doing the work and who is the work for. Does that person have a connection to the communities that they're hoping to serve? I think when people think of things like science communication, how people learn about new scientific concepts, they probably picture a scientist giving a lecture or writing a white paper. But that's actually not how most people get information. And science information is no exception. It's probably from someone in their community, probably someone that they trust. It follows that if you're hoping to engage with science or you're hoping to engage a kid with science, it's much more difficult to be done by someone who doesn't have a connection to their lived experience or take seriously the things that they take seriously or share their values. We know that's how information is is internalized. It's, It's from people close to you. So that's the first thing that we look for. And then where the science comes in, I don't necessarily think that we look for an organization that is science first. A lot of our awardees, for some of them, it may be the first time that they're even doing science programming. Obviously, we fund science museums and, and informal STEM education programs, and those are great and essential, but it's not everything. It's not the whole picture. And I think the degree to which you can build something that integrates music or design or performance seamlessly with science, that just gives more people more on-ramps to have a relationship with science. And whether that's for a brief period of time or it goes on to be a lifelong relationship. I just wanted to mention on that was that I saw that you also support initiatives that educate about autism. And I remember from reading David Burns' How Music Works that he has self-diagnosed as having Asperger's. And and it's so important to bring those different perspectives to a wider audience because there's a lot of misunderstanding or just Mm -hmm. lack of comprehension. So the the Autism Research Initiative about the foundation is a, a separate entity than Science Society and Culture. But when we're thinking about audiences and we have a particular focus on audiences that are underrepresented in science or maybe don't have as many opportunities to engage with science. Neurodiversity is certainly part of that conversation. Yeah, but the foundation does have a robust and really fantastic autism research program. I was just going to add before to your question about selecting the grantees and the projects observing support, we partner with John and the team to take that kind of selection process to the next level to evaluate what would make great cinematic stories that we can convey with our directors like Ian on screen in compelling ways. And it's not always a one-to-one of what is a powerful organization or what even is necessarily a great story to what will make for a great film that we think will move and inspire audiences. We want these films to inspire more people to apply to support for the Simons Foundation or to go into STEM themselves or to inspire them around their own organizations and what they're doing. And we take a process that, again, borrows from narrative 
of filmmaking, which is casting, which of course, every great movie you want to know, is that person the right person for the role? And it's not really the right word for a, a documentary film about a real individuals. But we find that there is sometimes, John alluded to this earlier, a potential misstep in a lot of storytelling that nonprofits and foundations do, where they think de facto that the people giving the support would make for good storytellers. And it's very common that you see in a video, even about a very impactful and important nonprofit, science or otherwise, interviews with their staff about the work they do and why that matters. And we often will try to invert that dynamic and look within the whole ecosystem of who's touched by an organization. It could be a young person. It could be a program officer. It could be a teacher in that ecosystem who doesn't work for the organization. But through their eyes, you can kind of ladder up that good work and that impact back to the organization. And we tried to take a very light touch as to what the money or Simon's foundation role was and really look at the journey that the people in this ecosystem are on. And so we'll evaluate together what are the stakes that this person has in the story? Did they overcome barriers to education in order to become a scientific educator? What was the inciting moment in their life, the way you might think of in a screenwriting handbook that sent them on their journey, whether it's somebody like David Byrne, or maybe it's a teacher in the inner city trying to bring STEM education to that. And then a, a second piece to that is what are the, I think that the hardest thing about science storytelling in general is that is applying the correct visual metaphors to work that sometimes is literally invisible, whether it's neurological concepts or some of the kind of metaphysical concepts that we're discussing now, or microscopic ideas. And an example that comes to mind is a video that we did about a grantee who studies urban water scum, the life that lives in ponds. Thank you everyone for coming. We're here today to look for microbes. This doesn't matter where you live. You can do microbiology in the middle of New York City, in your backyard, wherever you are. This algae is home to millions of microorganisms. Most life on Earth is microbial. They live in the water, soil, air. They even live inside our own bodies. We've coexisted for thousands of years, long before the inception of the city. I want people to relate to microbes because they are very similar to some of our most distant ancestors. By learning about all these different cells, we can maybe learn something about ourselves. And so our conceit for this idea is why don't we look at and assess the microbiotic life that lives in our ponds as a kind of visual metaphor for the city itself, a city of humans, like the city as a kind of coral reef of life. And so we were cinematically able to translate what you might see in a microscope to what you see on subway trains and crowded tunnels. And those are things that early on we look at in order to think about how to convey science effectively in an interesting way. And what I love about that, Nick, is especially as Sally, who is the scientist feature in that piece. She's really humanized in that piece. It gives a really realistic depiction of what it's like to be like a working scientist in New York City. This is for her outreach initiative. She's collecting specimens and puddles on sidewalks in the middle of Manhattan, right? She's getting looks from people walking down the street like, what is this person doing? I think that's something I appreciate about people's TV is that they don't shy away from those moments of humor. It's accurate in that way. I think that's so important, the personal story. And I've often said, because we've done a number of interviews on, you know, you know divers 
version or saving coral reefs or working with whales. And I feel like we could learn so much from coral reefs. If we could design our cities to be sustainable and provide food and shelter. Imagine if your skyscrapers grew food. I mean, I know they're kind of working on things, but not the way coral reefs do. We could learn really a lot. And just having that personal element that you can focus on and gets particularly young people, people are intimidated by science. All aspects of science are really important, but some aspects like how do we mitigate climate change is something that we all have to be on board with. The statistics go over people in a wash. And if you're not scientific or mathematically minded, what does 1.5 degrees of change since pre-industrial times really mean? Any kind of, whether it's a story or a visualization that helps bring it home is vital. As is the messenger. Like you said, Mia, people don't change their minds when they hear facts. You're not going to shame someone into action. That's not going to happen. So I think you're absolutely right. Stories and importantly, who is telling that story are so essential for anything really. But in terms of engaging with science and and having a relationship with science, it's critical. You know, what we do with these pieces, they're, they're only three minutes long. So in a way, I think of these stories as more of an invitation, or as John said earlier, an on-ramp to science and to going deeper into what these grantees do and the work that they do. And so a lot of these stories are meant to really open people up to the idea of going deeper or exploring it in their own way and being an extension of that story. Yeah, on that exact note, and just speaking about theater and climate change, um, one of the pieces that we're really proud of was supporting a Simons Foundation grantee called Chicken Shed, and we produced that piece this year, so your audiences should go check it out. I was definitely shy growing up, but performing really allowed me to come out of my shell more and to express myself without fear of judgment. I could be creative and just go out there with confidence. When I was in middle school, I became passionate about the environment and climate change. It really is something that younger generations did not cause, but we're the ones who have to deal with this every day for the rest of our lives. It's definitely the fight of our generation. That's why I'm so excited about Chicken Shed's upcoming show. We are coming together as a community to talk about this issue in a creative way. Before Chicken Shed, I really thought that theater was a lot more competitive. It really changed my mindset about that because we don't have auditions, so everyone is going to feel like they are part of something and not like they're being left out. Learning and inclusivity don't often work together, but at Chicken Shed, we got to connect with different people like a marine biologist and a food waste expert. And that's definitely reflected in our show because we have reused and recycled everything, like our clothing for costumes and different boxes and bags for the set. I even wrote a monologue about the importance of stopping climate change and pollution at a local scale. Chicken Shed really gives everyone a platform to be able to collaborate and to make change together. Being able to devise a show from the youth perspective is not oftentimes something that you see in theater, but it really is important to young people as a whole. I definitely am going to take away a lot from this experience. It really showed me the importance of collaboration because you're never going to solve climate change as one person. You're never going to make any change by yourself. Don't Stop Believing is our way of saying, we believe in this and we want you to believe in it too.
and John can speak more to the organization writ large, but our story followed a young theater performer who, along with other young people, put on a play about climate change informed by real scientists, real marine biologists, including discussion of reefs and other challenges that oceans are facing due to climate change. And I think what's really exciting about that piece and that approach for me personally is that we don't necessarily expect that the play will move the needle on climate change. But I think it was very clear from following this young protagonist who embarked on this act of storytelling and performance herself that she felt a great deal of catharsis and also empowerment by creating this artistic piece and sharing it with other young people. And that this artistic expression set her on a lifelong journey to deal with this issue, which she knows, I think she's 17 and sits uniquely on her generation's shoulders. And so I do think there's an important synthesis between science, the arts, and the actual tackling of the actual formidable challenge that we face. Oh, I think that's so important. Making them part of the story at that crucial age really helps ignite curiosity. We work with universities and students and give them opportunities to talk to leading creatives in many disciplines and find that sort of mentorship is empowering and fosters a sense of community. And there's that sense of accomplishment when you create something or reduce the pollution in your area. You can see that builds up cumulatively. Yeah. And I think it's not a a denial of of the kind of grand problems that we face. We're all inundated with the reminders that we face these challenges every day. I think it's more about, as Nick alluded to, this feeling like you have some ownership of science. Like it's a tool you can use to affect change in your community or even more broadly. And it's not this infallible thing, right? It's a mechanism for affecting change or decision making. And that switch in people is a really powerful moment when folks feel like, yeah, I can use science to make my life better and the lives of the people I care about better. That's a great deal of what we're after with a lot of the programs that we support. Technology is a great gateway as well. I know that you're also working on creating films leading up to the 2024 total solar eclipse. Yes, we are. John, do you want to maybe writ large say what the foundation's goal is and how films fit within that strategy? Yes, I will. I'll try to synthesize as I can. (laughs) Yeah, when we realized or found out that the eclipse was happening April 8th, 2024. One, we were really struck by where it was happening. It's not happening in New York or LA. It's happening in upstate New York, but not in New York City or LA or, or Washington, D.C. It's happening in parts of the country. So starting in the U.S., at least from Texas, from the South, through the Midwest to the Northeast, through Maine. These are places where, quite frankly, there are just not as many opportunities to engage with science as there are in places like San Francisco, New York, LA. So we thought, how amazing is this opportunity to reach those audiences that maybe we haven't before? And I think it's increasingly rare that science can be this unifying moment for people. And we think about things like the moon landing in the 60s, and they used to be moments of celebration. And how special is it that this kind of cosmic event can be this moment of collective awe and joy, even if it's only for two, three, four minutes. How amazing is that? And I think we really saw an opportunity to scaffold the work that was already underway, but also create opportunities for new work, support organizations that may not have even known that an eclipse was coming and in turn reach new audiences, especially rural audiences that maybe are are hours away from the nearest city. So yes, we're supporting usual suspects in the science engagement space, science museums and, and technology 
technology centers, but we're also looking at those organizations that are not science first. So arts and cultural centers, folks who work with rural communities, we're partnering with Main Street America, thinking about Chambers of Commerce and, and Downtown Alliances, how they're celebrating this moment and also logistically preparing for this moment because there's going to be an influx of tourists and then thinking about what does that work add up to. So it's this kind of thing of celebrating that this eclipse is happening in the place that you live, but also it's this connecting thing in a country that frankly doesn't have many moments of collective joy. So the fact that we could leverage this moment to help create one was really special for us. And obviously telling the story of, of the work that we're supporting and what we're doing, people were one of the first folks we talked to. And we knew we wanted to capture some of these moments on film. I can let Nick and Ian talk about what we're doing exactly in that regard. We're just unfolding it now, but today's a great chance to be chatting about this, Mia, because we just launched the opening salvo in the path of totality.org. We got to really flex some different creative chops in telling this story with the launch film that you can see on that website. We just launched, and when we thought about telling the story of the eclipse and this moment of unity, we really wanted to reach back into history to think about what eclipses have meant throughout generations because they've held a different and powerful connotation in different societies over time. Most days, life in cities from Austin to Akron, Bloomington to Buffalo, seem worlds apart. Our routines keep us tethered to our everyday realities, but the solar system has a routine of its own. Once in a long while, its orbits entwine and reveal our world in new dimensions. On April 8, 2024, over 30 million Americans will experience this cosmic waltz as they stand together in the path of totality. For millennia, eclipses have captured our imaginations, inspiring tales of good versus evil, and propelling us to new scientific discoveries. Across the world, ancient astronomers devised ways to predict their occurrence. Today, we have the full picture. The moon orbits our planet every 29 and a half days, passing between the Earth and the sun. But there's a twist. Since the orbits of the Earth and moon are on planes that are slightly askew, the moon seldom falls precisely in line with us and our star. But in that rare moment when all three bodies align, the moon casts its shadow upon us and day turns to night in the path of the total solar eclipse. Come April 8th, 2024, we'll put aside our daily routines to don viewing glasses and witness this spectacle. By supporting museums, cultural centers, main streets, and more, the Simons Foundation is helping to provide opportunities for everyone in the path to have an unforgettable experience. Together, in the midst of our collective awe, we'll realize we're all more connected than we know. On April 8th, see the world in a different light. More at inthepathoftotality.org. And so we felt the way to do that 
to reach back further even than traditional archival media, which doesn't go back millennia, with Celine into animation and to actually draw the worlds that existed when people all collectively stopped for a moment and looked up. And many of those were represented in drawing or illustrations, for example, indigenous societies who thought that a metaphor for the eclipse was a wolf devouring the moon um, is one of the ways that they visualize that metaphor. Of course, some of these ancient astronomers were incredibly prescient and more sophisticated than were aware of, but we wanted to bring to life visually how significant this moment has been for culture. And so that film is something that we're really excited about that just came out today. So I'm happy to plug that. And moving forward, what we want to do is really bring our cameras into these communities at the moment where they're all brought together. We talked earlier about how documentary has the potential to create connection and empathy. And I think similarly, this eclipse is that moment where people, whether they're in, as John said earlier, urban or rural areas across demographic and political divides are all connected. And so our hope is to deploy cameras and also potentially iPhones and simple tools to put the storytelling medium in the hands of people who are not necessarily filmmakers, but everybody has the power to be a filmmaker thanks to technology now, and try to capture from a broad swath in the path of totality.org the perspectives of people who are connected at that moment. And so we're just laying the groundwork for that now, working with the communities that the Science Sandbox initiative is supporting and are going to be identifying storytellers in those communities that we can work with and create a film that weaves together this moment and how we're all more connected than we know. Hey everyone, this is Indigo Magania, a creative writing student at Reed College. Just two days ago, a ring of fire eclipse passed over my home state in Oregon. Unlike a total eclipse, the moon does not completely cover the sun, and they form a bright ring. Even so, it gets dark. And my grandma and I, driving down Interstate 5 early Saturday morning, wondered why it was so dark all of a sudden. It was like we'd been set back an hour before sunrise. The Portland fog obscured the sky, so we had no idea the eclipse was happening until we got a call from my mother asking us if we could see it. Then I got a text from my friend in Mexico, also about the eclipse. Later, a friend showed us a video she'd taken set to the Johnny Cash song, Ring of Fire. In a coffee shop, I overheard a table singing the same song and swapping stories. This is an era of large-scale experiences. Unfortunately, a lot of them are terrifying. The pandemic, climate change, global media, and our fear has done very little to bind us together. It feels too big for us to handle and too complex to understand. So at worst, we're left politically divided and apathetic and at best anxious and jaded. Of course, it's hard to not look at things like climate change or the pandemic from a national or worldwide perspective. Now, I think there's a benefit in taking a deep breath and just tending your own garden, doing the best you can from your place on Earth. But I do think there's a way to look at the larger world without feeling crushed by it, and I saw that in the eclipse. For a day or two, everyone in its path was unified by a beautiful phenomenon in the sky. It gave people a shared sense of happiness and understanding, rather than a kind of collective trauma bond. I think that's how we unify, as communities and as nations, by finding and spreading symbols of hope, whether that's a work of art, a scientific discovery, or even a holiday. Now back to the interview. 
the sun, the source of light, and I think about the potential for some much greater utilization of renewable energy, and it gives us a, a moment of reflection and I think gratitude. And you talked about engaging the citizen scientist who's just curious and wants to document. And I think you've also worked with mountain climbers or different people who are able to collect information or the, the data that might not be accessible to scientific teams all the time. I think anytime you can make those introductions between scientists and folks in other disciplines, I think the funny thing is often the first you hear about their conversations or their initial meetings is, oh my, we had so much in common. We, we got along really well. We support this program that pairs scientists and filmmakers to make a short film over the course of one week to this festival called Symbiosis, which is part of the larger Imagine Science Film Festival. And the films are always amazing. And they've gone on to screen at prestigious film festivals across the country and even across the world. But for us, the process is really the joy of it. And it's just seeing them share stories of how they wanted to become a filmmaker or wanted to become a scientist and seamlessly create this film together. And a lot of them are still in touch. There's an alumni network. And it was maybe surprising to us in year one or year two, but now it's no longer surprising. The building blocks of science are so similar to, and in fact, maybe the same as the building blocks of things like filmmaking or any kind of artistic pursuit. And of course, there's tons of benefits in introducing scientists to folks uh, outside of their discipline. So you've brought together people in these film projects, scientists and artists, and then have you been surprised by some of them going on to do other collaborations beyond the uh, limits of the project? Yeah. Again, I don't know if surprise is the right word because it's funny, they tend to just get along really well from the start. So something that's important to us at the foundation is fostering a sense of community, something we definitely do in, in the Science Sandbox Initiative, which is our grant-making initiative that's part of science, society, and culture. We host a summit every year where we bring together all of our awardees from across the country to meet over two days and really loosely program. So there's tons of time for networking and we obviously want them to collaborate. We want things to come out of that, but often the best things that happen are without our oversight. There's friendships formed, there's collaborations that are formed, there's new organizations, even sometimes there's new projects all the time. Sometimes it's surprising, but really if you spend time in that community, it's really not because they they share so much of the same drive, the same why. And I wonder, each of you, what drew you to science and you started to get excited about it? Or you could share your reflections on teachers that excited your curiosity, maybe not just in the science or the arts, or that ignited you to go further. I think what John said is really true. There's a lot of overlap in the creative process and the scientific process. And when we get the chance to initially meet some of our subjects, you can tell how it's honestly contagious because they're so passionate about what they do and they care so much about what they do. And I'm thinking of a specific example of a robotics team in Arizona that we followed for one of our stories. And the coaches are so filled with enthusiasm about what they do that it really touches all of the students, but it affects me too. And to the point, and I don't know if John or Nick knows, but I've stayed in touch with one of the coaches just to see how the kids are doing. And all those kids that we featured in that short documentary, I think she said most of them got scholarships and our lead subject got a full scholarship scholarship to Columbia. A lot of these people, yes, they're preaching science and they're offering these school programs, but I think it transcends the stories we tell. I really do think that they carry the science with them, whether it be their next phase of academia or into an eventual career. 
here. And so it, it's inspiring for us as storytellers to see that it, it goes beyond these three minute episodes. That's awesome. I didn't know that, Ian. That's great that they're doing Amazing. well. So I went to a science focused high school, the uh, public school in New York called the Bronx High School of Science. And it's considered essentially the best science school in America. I think it's I'm just checking the Wikipedia in the background. It has, in fact, produced more science Nobel laureates than any high school in the country. And I absolutely hated it. It probably went further to drive me into the arts than maybe any other experience because I wanted to subvert those expectations there. Very rigorous and rigid is how I felt at the time. And I remember cutting classes to go out and shoot films with my VHS camera during break, which is what I wanted to do and express myself. And I saw those two things in opposition. And of course, that changed in adulthood. And I would say more recently, you brought up earlier the mystification of technology. And I think the world becoming more and more abstracted, not even artificial intelligence, but the internet and the amount of time spent on our devices. And that really became acute for me when I became a father two and a half years ago because my son is now at the age where he is asking perpetual whys that you always hear kids asking about. I'm now experiencing that firsthand. And eventually at the third or fourth why, I realized that I was taught that in Bronx science, what the next why was, because it was the chemical process happening in the LCD screen on my phone or the biological process that explains why he was hungry or had to poop or whatever it is. The building blocks were latent within me from what I learned then. And now I've re-engaged. I'm reading science books in my downtime, mostly so I can explain the world to him, which I realized through his eyes, I don't understand either. And I like the way John described it, not as a system or set of answers, but as a process or a tool or a frame of inquiry. And that's something that I'm really excited about as a storyteller with Simons. And, and we do have a number of other partners in the Science Foundation, Science Story storytelling space that I'm really proud to support. And I've come full circle in my interest for, for all these. <laughs> yes, they, they seamlessly tell these science stories and we love that. I think like Nick, for me, there wasn't a specific teacher or anything that, that got me interested in science. In fact, in high school, I viewed science as this monolithic, very institutional thing, like a certainty, this infallible thing. I remember memorizing the periodic table and we, we would use a Bunsen burner once every now and then, but my high school was not really a lot of opportunities to engage with science in a way that at least I found interesting. So my relationship to science didn't really begin until, as Nick alluded to, I started to see the humanity in it. To come back to this idea, it is a process by which we understand the world and meeting scientists who did not look like what I at the time thought a scientist might look like definitely helped. And just understanding this idea that science is just as much about the, the process of asking questions as it is about finding answers, if not more so, that really moved me. This idea of trying to understand the world around you and, and science as a mechanism for doing so. That was my own ramp. And it, it, it wasn't until I had that shift that it became accessible to me. Well, it's wonderful. It has to come from a, a deep desire. And I think that's what's really important about great teachers when they can ignite that. And I think you do that as well through the films. People who might feel intimidated can, through the fun process of learning or marrying it with the arts or realizing that like, going through the rooms of David Byrne's mind, in the process, you're questioning perception and understanding how music works and how we all hear things differently and how vision works or doesn't work, that there are these moments where what is reality? And these are really profound questions of science and neuroscience and the humanities, bringing those two together. I really feel that the 
science and the humanities are the glue that holds society together and this pursuit of creativity. So I think in closing, each of you, as you think about the future, maybe your children and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? I feel like, Nick, you should start. You're the one with the kid. I thought because I was the most eloquent. No, it's funny that you asked this because what I ask pretty much at the end of every documentary interview, whether it's with a scientist or somebody else, what's the message for the young you growing up, the young scientist growing up? So, of course, like any good interviewer, I'm totally flat-footed when the question is turned around. But yeah, I can only express it through my lens of expertise, which is that I feel very strongly that stories have power and people's personal stories are powerful and that everybody has personal experiences with science, whether they realize they do or not. And that is what I want young people to realize, that their stories matter. And that I think John articulated it well, that science is personal and it's yours to craft and it's yours to explore and it's your story to tell. I would just say that change can start within, whether that means asking the right questions or really figuring out, okay, if you don't like something, how can you be part of changing it? And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do it by yourself. I think there are a lot of other people that were probably feeling the same way that you do. And it's important to find those people and work with them or listen to them, learn from them. It's easy to feel alone and cynical, but you'd be surprised to understand that there's a lot of people out there that feel the same way and want to change things. Yeah, totally that. I think something I love about this job is that we all get caught up in these big systems thinking, like how do we move the needle on something like climate change? But I'm always in awe of the people for whom their job it is to get their after-school program of 15, 20 kids, get them all signed onto Zoom or get them all in the classroom, get them fed and get them to complete their work and get them home at the end of the time. It's such a seemingly small thing, but that's their focus and they're able to do it so well. And those people are miracles to me. I think the people who can focus on, on the day-to-day things that we have to do, frankly, that's not a small thing. And I think to Nick's point, cynical people tend to be the loudest and there's a lot of loud voices out there that can make you feel like things are are hopeless or whatever. But being hopeful is a choice that we can all make. And there's a lot of people who maybe aren't as loud, but they're doing essential work and they're all around you. And I think on the science point, scientists stand on the shoulders of scientists that come before them. It's an evolving thing. It's not a fixed thing. You don't need to be led in by anyone. You can have ownership of it and you can contribute. I think that's important. Indeed, it's a collective community and everyone is doing essential work. And it's not just hope because when you provide the support and you provide the information, people are empowered. So it's a directed hope. And we can really accomplish Mm -hmm. a lot as a collective community. And also, yes, about stories, I believe, of course, in the power of stories. Mm -hmm. We are story. It's in our DNA. And it's what allows us to collectively create a a vision for the future. So thank you, John, Nick, and Ian, the Simons Foundation, Science Sandbox, and People's Television for breaking down boundaries between science and art and being a unifying force for education and engagement. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producers on this episode were Katie Foster and Indigo Magania. 
The creative process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.